Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently spoke with Craig Clunas about his new book, Screen of Kings, Royal Art and Power in Ming China. This was produced by Reaction Books and the University of Hawaii Press in 2013. This was a real treat and a real... there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently spoke with Craig Clunas about his new book, Screen of Kings, Royal Art and Power in Ming China. This was produced by Reaction Books and the University of Hawaii Press in 2013. This was a real treat and a real special pleasure for me for many reasons. Um, First of all, the book is beautifully written and absolutely beautifully produced. It's a really gorgeous object as well as being extraordinarily stimulating um, and just enjoyable as a narrative. But also the kind of work that Craig is doing in this book is very explicitly and deliberately revisionist in a way that's really productive, really engaging, and really, really, I think, important and also good to think with. So what he's doing in this book, among other things, is he's shifting our attention away from some oft-trod territory in Ming history. So the kinds of areas, the sorts of historical figures, the kinds of practices and ways of thinking about space that tend to dominate our narratives and toward a set of figures, Ming kings, a way of thinking about space as sort of polycentric here and a way of prioritizing regionality and also thinking about the to who was responsible for the production, dissemination, and reproduction of material artifacts and documents in a way that's just very new and very refreshing. So it's interesting both because it's just an inherently interesting and engaging story about the production of art, artifacts, documents, and and different manifestations thereof. But it's also really a model, I think, of what it can look like to try to tell a history of and with figures who don't leave the same sorts of obvious documentary and physical traces um, as some of the figures who otherwise populate our histories. So it's a really wonderful book. I think it's absolutely a must read for anybody interested in the history of art in China, the history of the Ming, or relationships relationships between uh, kind of systems of power and geographies of power and the production of the arts. It's also just, like I said, a really beautiful book and a really beautifully written book. So I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed talking with Craig about it. And I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book. Um, and also, I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're here today to talk with Craig Clunas about his new book, Screen of Kings, Royal Art and Power in Ming China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Craig, and thank you so much for navigating the time difference um, between our two localities and for making the time to talk with me today. I'm really, really excited about the book. I think it's important and fascinating and also quite beautiful. So thank you. 
Well, thank you very much for having me. So could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the history of the arts in China? Well, my original training wasn't as an art historian and wasn't very specifically directed towards the arts. I, I did a fairly um, traditional Chinese studies degree at Cambridge as an undergraduate, which was, you know, your old school um, European Sinology degree, which was very, very textually based. Um, it did include an option or it did include at one point some material on, on archaeology, which I found, I have to confess now, pretty tedious and pretty hard going. And the, the things that interested me more were um, the literature of China, and um, particularly the literature of the late imperial period, the Ming and Qing. And I kind of specialised in uh, Ming and Qing fiction. That was what I did as, a, as an undergraduate. And then I went on to write a doctoral dissertation in Qing literature, in 19th century Qing literature, uh, on the relationship between uh, a body of fiction written in Mongolian and and literature written in Chinese. But then my career kind of, I'd always been interested in the visual arts. And I had, in fact, spent some time volunteering, interning, I guess you would say, um, in, in a museum, in the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. Uh, and so when a job was advertised at the Victoria and Albert Museum in 1979, um, I applied for this job. I, I didn't necessarily think I would get it. I certainly didn't think I was a shoe-in for it. Um, and I had this spiel at the interview about how the fact that I'd kind of read the Hong Lo Meng meant that I, ha I knew a lot about Qing material culture. This was essentially a bluff. Um, but it, it was... It, I mean, it wasn't completely a bluff. I mean, I sort of believe it was a bluff, but I kind of believed it myself at the time. Um, but um, the the uh, Michael John Ayres, who was head of the East Asian Department at the VNA at the time, was was generous enough or imaginative enough or, or whatever to to give me the opportunity. Um, and so I worked for about fifteen years in the VNA as a curator of. Uh, of Chinese art and the kind of things that the VNA has are not the sort of calligraphy and painting that are at the heart of the canon of Chinese art. They're the, the so-called decorative arts of the late imperial period, the Ming and Qing, and that, that's how I became more of a specialist, worked on those sort of things, and then then stepped sideways into into teaching art history, first at the University of Sussex and then at SOAS and then um, since 2007 here at Oxford in the art history department. Great, thank you. So the book that we're talking about today explores the significance of members of the imperial clan, what some scholars um, previously have called princes, what you're calling kings here in the book in Ming China. And it also explores many aspects of the connections and intersections between Ming kings and the arts and makes some really interesting and important revisionist points that pertain much more broadly to how we understand and practice and read Ming history on a global scale. And so we'll get to um, those more specific elements over the course of our conversation. Can you say a little bit, though, first to get us oriented about how you came to this particular topic? Where does this fit within your larger research trajectory? And how did you come to a decision to create a book-length object mm. around this particular topic and theme? Well, well, you use the word revisionist. And, and I suppose I think 
to myself that it, it, this is in a sense revisionist of stuff that I've written myself um, in the sense that um, ever since the early 90s, I, I've been working pretty concentratedly. It's not the only thing I do, but, but most the big projects that I've done have all been in the Ming period. But they have all tended to concentrate on the so-called literati elite of, of Jiangnan. I mean, a number of the projects that I've done from a book called Superfluous Things in 1991 onwards have, have dealt with the family of the famous Ming literati painter, Wen Zhengming, who states from 1470 to 1559. And I've even written a monograph called Elegant Debts, which is just about Wen Zhengming. So this is about the landscape of of Jiangnan, of the region of the lower Yangtze Delta, the, the kind of the urban centre of the urban heartland of Ming China, and what, what we very much thought of as the kind of cultural heartland of Ming China. But kind of about, well, I think eight or nine years ago, various things, things other people had read, things I'd read myself in primary sources, um, began to make me think, isn't, isn't our history of the Ming very um, Jiangnano-centric in the sense that our, our understanding of the of the period is very much driven by the artifacts and the accounts that mattered to a particular kind of elite in these big cities of the Lower Yangtze Delta. So I'm talking about Nanjing and Suzhou and Hangzhou and, and cities like that. But you know, if we know, if we teach ourselves, our students anything about China, the first thing we, we always want to teach them is that it's very, very big. And and so it's partly me thinking, hang on a minute, what's happening outside Jiangnan? What's happening in Shanxi or in Sichuan or in Shandong or you know the rest of this vast uh, empire? And the minute that you start to look outside Jiangnan where there weren't any members of the hereditary imperial aristocracy. So, so there weren't any of these guys, these kings or princes or, or whatever you want to call them. And, and I, I, I presume we'll get on to that mm-hmm. terminology in a minute. But, but whatever you want to call them, there weren't any of them in Suzhou or Hangzhou or Nanjing or around those parts. But as soon as you got to a major city Elsewhere in China, and these are, you know, these are major historical centers like Xi'an in Shanxi province or, or Chengdu in Sichuan. These are the big figures, the prominent figures on the cultural landscape. So there's, there's, there's that kind of thinking. And then there's also the, um, the, the kind of happenstance that archaeology in China itself has started to produce very spectacular finds related to this uh, these body of people, uh, partly because they tended to be buried on the outskirts of major cities, and so um, you know you're building a shopping mall or you're building a, 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 a parking lot on the outskirts of Chengdu, you know the kind of archaeology that you might well come into contact with might well be Ming aristocratic. Archaeology, and so there's a big body of of new excavations, and some of this has been very well published in China, and I guess that's part of it. Um, but I think then there's also the serendipitous stuff that you know you get asked to do things, and you think, oh, this might be a good idea, 
And um, so I got asked to contribute to um, a volume edited by Wu Hong at Chicago, which was about kind of Chinese engagements with the past or the uses of antiquity. And, and that led to a sort of chapter length bit, a bit about calligraphy, working on calligraphy and rubbings and so on. That, that's, that's one of the chapters in the book. Um, and then I thought, no, there's there's more here. I, this is what I want to work up into a, a, a book-sized project, which is what I've tended to do. I've not been a great writer of, of journal articles, you know, highly as I value that format. But I, I've tended to, to do a smaller number of bigger things rather than a, a, rather than the, the, the article length thing. I've, I've tended to enjoy working at the at the book length project. Mm-hmm. Actually, since you just mentioned that, because that's particularly fascinating to me from um, the perspective of craft, can you say actually a little bit more about that preference? What for you is compelling about the practice and the craft of working on a book length project versus a smaller, um, more contained journal article length object? Well, there are the, I mean, there are the, I guess at one level, there's the kind of the unworthy desire to see your name on a spine, you know. know, I see my name on a spine, therefore I exist, you know, so that it's it's a way of staving off existential crisis. so, so there's that. I mean, I suppose there's also the thing that if you if you find you can do it, you know, you, it, it, it's about finding out what your what works for you, what you what you're good at. Um, and and I found that I can do this. Um, I mean, I think there's a real issue now about whether books are the sensible thing to do because in the in the you know in the new digital environment, um, you know, a, a, a journal article that is available electronically is going to reach a much much wider audience than the scholarly monograph. And you know, the scholarly monograph, the, the you know, there are people out there who are prepared to read the last rites um, over its grave. But I suppose I began my career, you know, at a point where the book was the was the kind of gold standard. There's also a thing that I mean, I, I never turn my my PhD thesis is sitting quietly gathering dust on the shelves of SOAS Library because my career took this, um, you know, ninety degree turn. Uh, from from the work on kind of Qing literature and Mongolian literature into working on the decorative arts. I never published my thesis. There's no book of the thesis. So I don't know, you know, at, at, at some psychological level, maybe I'm trying to make up for that, uh, you know, that, that, that non-achievement. Um, I, you know, I just don't know. I mean, it, 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 it I, I've, I suppose I've done it several times, and so I've gotten used to the rhythm of the of the big project. And and, and you know, you would have to say that the, the what, what feels like the big payoff. But I'm not convinced it's the best way to get work out there. You know, I think I think as people get busier, you know. Do we have the time to read books? I know that there are, you know, I'm sitting in this office here surrounded by other people's new books that I wish I had the time to read. But, you know, I may not read them, whereas I might have time to read a journal article. So, you know, it's it's it. They're they're a mixed blessing, I think. Mm -hmm. I think I think another thing I would say um, 
is is that I've been very fortunate to work with a very special publisher, um, and that's Reaction Books in London, who, who didn't publish my very first book, but they published my second book, which in some well, I'd published a load of books with the Victoria and Albert Museum, but they were books about the museum's collection in a sense the museum had to publish them. Um, uh, and then I did the first book. I did Superfluous Things in 91 uh, with a publisher called Polity in Cambridge. Um, and then my second book, which was Fruitful Sites, which was about gardens, got turned down by a load of publishers. Hmm. You know, I, you know it was, I won't name them, but a load of publishers turned it down. Um, you know, um, and then uh, Reaction Books said, no, no, we'll do this. Uh, at least one, one very distinguished publisher turned it down on the grounds that this falls between two stools, which is a kind of interesting, you know, it shows you that, you know, interdisciplinarity is a great idea, but if publishers don't know which part of their catalogue to put your book in, they may turn it down. Okay. Um, whereas Reaction Books, you know, took up fruitful sites. They, they, I found working with the people there, you know, working with the people who do the production. I feel it's a publisher where, you know, they, they care about what they're publishing. And so there's always been from them a kind of, you know, what are you working on? You know, can we see the new thing? You know, we'd really like to. So, so that, that feeling that there's, that there's somebody who wants to see the next book manuscript is maybe one of the things that, that makes the production of a next book manuscript slightly, um, slightly easier. Thank you. So this book that we're talking about today focuses on or centers on the role of what we've alternately been referring to as um, princes, as kings, um, for the purpose of our conversation. And you've brought up the um, already in your um, introduction of the book and of this theme, the tricky nature of this term. And, and in some ways, one of the really important kinds of work that the book does is to make us think again about this term um, that often many of us who even who work on Ming history tend to take for granted as you know, princes. And in, in rethinking this term and in rethinking the kind of work it does, really replace who these people are on the landscape, not just um, geographically, but also conceptually, um, epistemically, and historically of the way we understand the Ming and the Ming in the world. So with that in mind, first things first, what is a Ming king for our purposes today? And what do listeners need to understand about that category of people um, in order to understand the kinds of arguments that the, the later chapters of the book are going to make? Well, it, maybe I could start by saying that I don't think I'm going to be able to make the term king stick. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm not really bothered about that, actually. Um, I think um, I, I would be perfectly happy if if people carried on using the term prince, if as as you've just suggested, they kind of rethought what their role was. That 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 seems to me to be the more important point than that I should get my way about about the translation. And so the translation is is slightly, you know, it, it's slightly provocative. It is designed to make people say, you know, whoa, you're, you're, you know, you're, that's not right. You're not supposed to say that, are you? So, the, so the Chinese word is Wang, you know, 
a very simple word, um, you know, still one of the most common um, Chinese surnames, obviously, um, and a term which goes right back into the earliest sorts of Chinese texts we've got, right, well, certainly right back into the into the Bronze Age, and really the the kind of eureka moment for me, and I, I've mentioned this in the book, um, was that. If you see, if you're, you know, if you're reading Mencius, now, now Mencius was the, you know, the first classical Chinese text I, you know, was set to read as, as an undergraduate. That was what we worked through. And the actual chapter that we worked on was Liang Hui Wang, you know, which, which you translate as King Hui of Liang. You know, Mencius meets King Hui of Liang. The king says, you know, blah, blah. so this word Wang is always translated as, as king. Um, and, the Chinese archaeologists dug up early in this century the tomb of a, of a man whose title is Liang Zhuangwang, right? It, it's the same character Liang, you know, which was, was one of the princely, one of the states of Bronze Age China, that, that of the Warring States period. Um, so it's the same Liang and it's the same Wang. It's a slightly different title, but immediately we translate this as as prince. You know, because because um, you know, well we well we just can't say king, can we? So I thought, well, why can't we? Why can't we say king? Well, let's just think about who these people were. In order to be a a a Xin Wang, there's the, the imperial aristocracy in the Ming period came in various grades. Um, at the top, the top grade are the grade called Qin Wang, and that would be usually translated or traditionally translated as princes of the blood. A Qin Wang is the son of an emperor other than um, the, the crown prince. So typically in the Ming period, the, the kind of the succession rules say that the eldest son will be uh, crown prince and will be emperor after his father, and all the other ones will be called um, will be called Wang, will be Tin Wang, and they will at a certain age when they, when they become kind of formally adults, so that's around the age of fourteen, they will go to their states. Um, so the Chinese is Guo, you know, they will go to their Guo. You know, Guojia de Guo, or you know, Ying Guo, Mei Guo de Guo. This this word that you know in modern Chinese means state or nation. They, they, and and of course in the in the Bronze Age terminology, you know, gets translated as you know the warring states. You know, Jan Guo. So 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 Ming China is is conceptually covered by these Guo. These these states that that these princes kings um, you know as I say I'm not going to go not going to die in the last ditch for the for the term king um, you know so the, these aristocrats who they go to them um, then uh, you have a system whereby uh, the oldest son of the uh, king. Uh, becomes a, a uh, he inherits the, the the Wang title, and then all the others are are Jun Wang, which is commandery king. I'm translating it as, and then 
you know, their eldest sons inherit that title and their next sons get, all the other sons get a, another title, Defender General of the State. And these titles go down through titles, you know, right down to Supporter Commandant of the State, you know, or Fungo Jungwe. These are, so there's, there's loads and loads of, there's a very, you know, it's a very kind of complex, baroque, um, aristocratic uh, system. Um, and there's a, there's a parallel set of titles as well. So, you know, the role of kind of aristocratic women um, in, in the Ming landscape seems to me to be, to be really important. And a basic fact just struck me. One of the things that the literature on these people had always said is, you know, there's a lot of them, you know, because, because the, 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 you know, they multiply. You know, if, if every son of a king is, you know, a Jun Wang and the, you know, so these titles multiply. Also, you know, as you go through the Ming, there are new princedoms or fiefdoms or kingdoms or whatever you want to call them um, created. Some Ming emperors didn't have very many sons. Some had, had very large numbers. Obviously, the Ming founder, Zhu Yanzhang, the Hongwu emperor, he had a huge number. So many of them descend from these uh, sons of the, of the Ming founder. So, so you've got this kind of growing, growing number of them. And it just struck me that, you know, in, a, in the Ming, whether in the early Ming or in the late Ming, if you were in a city like Xi'an or Taiyuan or Chengdu, you were much more likely to see a member of the imperial aristocracy go by in the street than you were to see uh, the holder of a jinshu, you know, the top level of the, of the imperial civil service exams. You, you are much more likely to see a prince than you were to see a district magistrate. You know, the number of district magistrates in the Ming was very, very much smaller than the number of aristocrats. And yet, if you think of our kind of, the, the sort of accepted history of the Ming, think, think of something like the two Cambridge History of China Ming volumes, um, you know, which, which are, you know, wonderful creations of, of, of collective scholarship. Um, the, the amount of space given to the aristocracy is kind of tiny. You know, they're kind of noted that they're at the beginning, they're in the beginning of the story, and Hong Wu did this with his sons, and then uh, they, you know, they kind of fade out of the story in the Yung Lorraine, and they're never really, never really mentioned again. But it, it just struck me that if we wanted to think about um, local society, and, and this would come back to kind of, you know, something that's been, you know, gnawing at me for years and years and years and years and years, which is the kind of the role or I mean I don't know if you feel this in your own work but, but sometimes it, it dawns on me or, or I have this thought what if we've got it wrong okay. and, I don't, and I don't mean what if, what if we've got it a bit wrong what if we've got it all wrong you know what if we've got it wrong in a kind of big major way a way where we kind of you know, we tell ourselves the same story over and over again. And in some ways, the story that we've been telling ourselves about the Ming Dynasty over and over again since the Ming Dynasty um, is the story that 
you know, Matteo Ricci was the first to, to tell Europeans, you know, this is different. It's not about, you know, in, in this country, the wise govern, you know, the, the, you know, this is a, this is a place where, uh, you know, the, the, the ruling class are, are a kind of intellectually selected rather than, rather than kind of hereditarily there by birth. Um, and, and he had a very particular agenda, I think, behind this story. If you think about kind of who the Jesuits were and what their agenda was and the kind of story they're trying to tell. And then this gets overlaid by other agendas, the kind of 17th century agenda for explaining the fall of the Ming. You know, why did this dynasty collapse? Then the whole kind of May 4th agenda for explaining China's feudalism. And, and one of the one of the kind of, you know, points I've tried to make in the book, and, and this, you know, this is me, you know, I'm not, you, no, but you never make anything up from scratch, I think. You, you, you read other people's work and you think, uh, you know, uh, hang on a minute. I could make a contribution of what I know can chime with this. So, you know, I'm reading, I'm thinking, I mean, I'd read many years before, but then I'm remembering the work that Presenjit Duara did on the whole notion of, of feng jian. How does feng jian come to mean feudal? Which, of course, as we know, in the history of 20th century China is completely a bad thing. And that would be true whether in kind of, liberal May 4th movement historiography or in Marxist historiography after 1949 and equally in Japanese Marxist historiography um, of the 20th century. So feng jian is a bad thing because it's feudal, you know, that's backward. This is all part of the big issue about, you know, explaining China's development or, or, or lack of development. Um, so so there's, there's a kind of perfect storm of contempt and disregard, mm -hmm. which is about saying these people are bad and they don't matter, you know. You know, they're completely terrible and we don't have to pay any attention to them. And even just in that, it seems to me there's a kind of, um, you know, there's a kind of paradox. If these people really don't matter, how can they have such a terrible effect? And if they have such a terrible effect, then then surely they matter. And, th and that's leaving aside the question of whether they do have a terrible effect or not. And I guess some of it's coming out of, you know, reading the history of other parts of the world. I, I read quite a lot of early modern European history. I, I try to keep up with with work being done on other parts of the world. I think it's really, really important for a historian of China to not just read Chinese history. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's very easy to fall into a kind of exceptionalism. Just as I, you know, I think it's really, really important for historians of European history to read some Chinese history. And, you know, I will, I will take any opportunity that I can to kind of, you know, try and make them do so. And I, and I think the stuff I've written, I also, I also try and write in a way that reduces their excuses for not reading it. That's right. You know, that's, you know, that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, you can't make people read stuff, but you can write in a way that make that reduces their their excuses for not reading it. And this is a book which is very consciously written in a way that I hope that you know, historians of other parts of the world might, 
you know, might read it, that they wouldn't be able to say, oh, this is very technical or you have to know a huge amount about, about you know, Chinese culture in order to get a handle on it. I am trying and I, I, I think, I, you know, I would acknowledge that at certain points there's probably a certain um, slate of hand which, which kind of hides some of the complexities, but it hides them in the service of reducing the excuses of historians of other parts of the world for saying, oh, we can't, we don't possibly have to know about that. That's something happening way over there. It's got nothing to do with us. Right. Well, this, this actually, I think, really nicely brings us into some of the later chapters of the book. So just to, um, there's... Uh, so much happening in so many of these chapters that we we can't possibly hope to get to um, each one of them or even each one of the interesting things about the chapters we do get to. So what I want to do is, is take this as an opportunity to lead us into some of the case studies, but first to mention um, along the way as you take us from the first chapter into the later chapters where you're presenting us with the case studies, you elaborate on many of the themes that you've been talking about. And so you talk about um, the uh, Wong the kings as fence and screen. And so this um, speaks to the title of the book, among other things, and talk about as well the simultaneous visibility and invisibility of these Ming kings. Um, And there's an entire chapter, chapter two, that lays out the textual and archaeological and geographic landscape of these Ming kings in a way that's extraordinarily attentive to some of the phenomena you've just been speaking to, and that is the nature of the evidence that we have, the way we read the evidence, the access we have to evidence in creating narratives and stories about the past, and the ways that, um, at the same time, those particularities of the surviving evidence shape what we can say, but also how we can be more attentive to looking for evidence in places we may not otherwise look um, for in order to as well make sure that we're incorporating kinds of evidence in thoughtful and creative ways that maybe in the past or you know maybe right now some of us aren't as attentive to and that might shape um, quite dramatically the way we understand and have told stories of um, of Ming kings and of Ming history uh, more generally. So after laying out this um, groundwork, and we'll get to some examples that also help bring out some of the larger themes that you talk about in chapter two, I think later on um, in the case study chapters, you bring us into chapter three, and this is the first of a series of case studies that use a particular kind of work and a particular space of work in order to um, flesh out and develop some of these larger ideas. Chapter three looks at the centrality of kings in the creation, the reproduction, and the dissemination of calligraphy. And those terms are are quite um, thoughtfully used, and I'm going to ask you about some of them because I think there's a lot of potential for the work that you're doing in this chapter to speak much more broadly, um, particularly because of your invocation of some of the terms like reproduction, but we'll get to that. Now, the chapter draws our attention to what you call a double exclusion, both the importance of kings in Ming history, which we've spoken to a little bit, and also at the same time, the importance of calligraphy as an art-making practice. Now, to get specific about this, you, as a way of, of um, drawing out some of these ideas, you bring us into a collection um, or a text that is called, and I'm going to mispronounce this, so forgive me and correct me, offerings from the appendages, appendages, appendages? 
Well, who knows? I mean, appendages is not an everyday word in my kitchen either. Okay. okay. Um, you know, let's go with appendages. You know, I, I mean. Okay. Okay. Let's let's go with appendages. Thank you. So, can you introduce um, just a little bit about this text as a way of opening up um, what you see to be the importance of the relationship between kings and the practices um, surrounding and infusing calligraphy in this period? What's important about this text that helps us understand what's important about this relationship as you see it in this period? Yeah. Well, well, this must have been one of the kind of key early ideas I was working with because you know I, I I thought you would ask me you know when did you you know how did you start working on this so I was kind of looking back through various notebooks um, and and I realized you know I, in, in 2007 I wrote in a notebook something about you know look into the homology between kings as cultural uh, replicators and projects of cultural reproduction and so that was that was very central and in fact the, the chapter on calligraphy was that was the first bit that I wrote that was the kind of first thing that I worked on um, I, again you know there's there are elements of the um, well just the you know the the, the uh, con, you know, just just context. This collection, this Baosiantang Tibu Fakir, which is this collection of rubbings, um, has been very well reproduced and very well published um, in China. You know, the the the. the deeply scholarly work on kind of editions and, and how it's put together and a facsimile of the thing that, you know, that gives you the, that gives you the freedom to sort of sit in your desk in London or Oxford and, and kind of, you know, really, really get to grips with it. Now, it obviously that relates back to kind of chapter two. And I just wanted to say about chapter two that, you know, I couldn't have written, I could have written that stuff on calligraphy without ever leaving uh, Britain, but, the stuff on the kingly landscape is absolutely dependent on, you know, a, a big research trip to China in 2009 and then to the kind of willingness of, of colleagues in China to, to take me places and show me stuff and, and not only show me, you know, stuff that I'd asked to see, but say, actually, the thing you don't know about that you do actually want to see, particularly in Hubei, I was very fortunate to to meet a, a real kind of, you know, a colleague in Hubei who kind of got it, who, what, what I was interested in. And he said, well, I think if we just go and look at this place, that might, you know, penny might drop for you. So this issue of, of kind of reproduction, um, you know, I, in a sense, kings reproduce the imperial charisma in the provinces. I mean, obviously, they are, they are offspring, they are sons, they reproduce biologically. And this idea about the kind of analogy, homology, I don't really know how I want to put it, but between kind of biological reproduction and cultural reproduction, because this is a collection of rubbings. So this is about reproducing the most prestigious form of culture through um, through through rubbing, which is, you know, again, something that hardly studied at all until very recently. Wu Hung's written about it. I've had a graduate student work on it relatively recently. Um, but, you know, this fascinating kind of pre-printing, it goes back a long way, this idea that you could cut calligraphy in stone and then you could take rubbings from it. And, and that's the way that you could hand down, you know, the most prestigious cultural products. So something like 
you know, the calligraphy of Wang Xizhi, you know, how high does that stand in the canon of Chinese culture? It's the most prestigious visual cultural manifestation by, a, by some distance, by a long way. And yet, we don't have any original calligraphy by Wang Xizhi. We have rubbings of carvings of calligraphy by Wang Xizhi. And then it's rubbings, which are, you know, rubbings, which are copies. I mean, Bob Harris has written this wonderful piece called um, um, Copies All the Way Down, you know, which is like turtles all the way down. Um, you know, that, that, that all we've got are copies of copies of copies of copies. But yet these things maintain the kind of the charisma and this seemed to me to be kind of interesting, you know, in, in thinking about how a copy of a copy of a copy of a piece of calligraphy retains its charisma and the way in which a kind of a reproduction of a reproduction of a reproduction of a reproduction of an emperor retains some of that kind of colossal um, charisma. I think maybe an element that I... I underplayed in the book that I have been thinking about since is, is the whole kind of, you know, sacral kingship part of it. Again, you know, Ricci and so on led us to think of the Ming and Qing as being very, um, you know, essentially it's a kind of secular humanist culture. Um, and just as, you know, the recent work on Confucianism has been about putting the kind of the numinous and the sacred back into what we call Confucianism. Um, I think there's something to be said for putting the kind of the sacral and the numinous back into into sovereignty, um, certainly in the in the Ming period, and and the ways in which um, uh, you know the regional aristocracy made bodied that forth, you know, kind of were the actual embodiment in the literal sense of that. That seems to me to be, you know, to be an idea worth worth digging deeper into. Now, one of the things that you talk about in this chapter, and that continues to be a theme throughout, is the very poor fit, as you put it, between textual and material evidence for the history of calligraphy. And we're going to see this coming up in later chapters as well, especially in terms of what it tells us about the involvement of kings. Now, you tell us almost nothing survives of kingly calligraphic output in the Ming, and when it does survive, it's from individuals who are invisible in the textual record. Now, this theme of invisibility, the importance of invisibility, is key, at least to um, the perspective of one reader, right? my idiosyncratic perspective. But invisibility is key here. And one of the loci of invisibility throughout the book, but especially in this chapter, um, is the invisibility of women. So could you speak a little bit to that? Because that's something that's important here, not just in the chapter on calligraphy, but you talk about this in the chapter on painting. Um, you talk about this when you're talking about the tombs and the jewels of the King of Liang. So where are women um, in your story relative to where they are typically in this story? Well, uh, uh a very influential moment for me. I, you know, I read this very fine book by Ruby Lal on on women in Mughal India. So this is India in the 15th, 16th century. So you know, exactly contemporary with the uh, with the uh, Ming. And and she uses the phrase. I mean, she obviously didn't make up the phrase because it's kind of just part of everyday speech. But this notion of hidden in plain sight. Um, that her argument is that, that Mughal imperial women are very visible 
in the in the chronicles, but we've just chosen not to see that. And and that was very kind of influential for me in thinking about princes as a whole, because you know, for example, you know, the the, the Ming Shu is full of biographies of princes. Um, you open a text on Ming painting like the Ming Hualu, and it, it opens with a section on princes um, as painters. So you know, it's not like it's not like I've had to dig into you know, read texts that, you know, there's only one copy somewhere in a rare university library in Japan. You know, this is the Mingshu we're talking about here. These are the, you know, these are the most kind of visible monuments of of uh, of, of, of Ming historiography. But there is a particular problem, I think, about, about Ming, uh, Ming women, which um, uh, you, you know the 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 record is very very poor um you know and 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 but but the fact that 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 so there's a very smooth surface of invisibility there's a screen if you like over them but every so often there's a kind of punctum there's a sort of a, a point of you know where, where the screen there's a little tiny kind of rip in the screen and a gleam of light comes out which suggests that there's a whole lot going on back there so for example um uh uh, a relatively recent graduate student of mine, Lok Yu Ping, who now works at the, at the British Museum. Um, so Yu Ping's thesis was about the. Um, um, you, you may well be familiar with it. It's a, it's a kind of an amazing scroll in the San Diego Museum of Art um, called the Ordination Scroll of Empress Zhang. Empress Zhang was the wife of the uh, Hongzhi Emperor. So we're talking about the late, talking about the 1490s. And here's this huge scroll. You know, enormously elaborate painted artifact, which shows her being kind of ordained with various Taoist arcana. She's being given the power to summon various deities. This is obviously a big event. There is no textual record of this happening at all. Right, you know, Yu Ping looked everywhere. It's not in the Ming Shulu. It's not in the kind of sources that are about the 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 uh, the uh, celestial masters. You know, it's not in Taoist sources. So, you know, if this scroll had not survived, and it's a unique kind of thing, we wouldn't know anything about this at all. This incident would be completely lost to us, and and the, therefore, I think. Occasional bits of evidence like that. Well, you could read it two ways. You know, women did nothing, said nothing, had no agency, and that's why there's no evidence for them. You could say that, or you could say um, women did a lot, said a lot, um, were important, but their agency is largely invisible. But the existence of things like this, or like the the tomb of the of the king of Liang, and and I've you know I've got a reading of that which I, I admit is very speculative, but gives a lot of agency to his widow. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know the fact that we've got you know we've got a small number of dots, and I, I guess what I'm doing here is is just saying well let's just let's just speculatively join up these dots. And then we might be able to have, we'll never have a full 
picture. You know, there isn't some great body of sources that we're not looking in. And, you know, first year, first year history of art undergraduates, he all read a very famous essay by the art historian Linda Nochlin. Maybe you know it called Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And what they very quickly learn is that the correct answer to this or the answer not Linda Nochlin wanted to give is not, well, there have been some okay women artists. That's not the right answer. The answer is the category of great artists has been constructed in such a way that women cannot be in that category, mm-hmm. right? So in a sense, it's the wrong question or it's a loaded question. So, you know, so the question, why have there been no, um, uh, you know, powerful Ming imperial and royal women is, is a question rather like that, that the historical record we have, uh, and, and this is true of the kings themselves in the sense that we know, you know, we have, I mean, we, this is the same is true of peasants. You know, we're in, we're in kind of Gayatri Spivak territory here, aren't we? Can the subaltern speak? And the answer is no, because if she could, she wouldn't be the subaltern. You know, the definition of the subaltern is that which cannot speak. Now, the interesting thing is that, you know, the Ming aristocracy are subaltern, both male and female, in a certain way, in that they, um, you know, the historical record is controlled by, um, uh, you know, the the, the, the the dice are loaded, the, the, the record is rigged, it just as, we, you know, everybody would accept that if you were working on medieval Europe, the kind of texts you have reflect the agenda of the church, you know, religious religious professionals, because they were the only literate people. You know, we don't have medieval European chronicles which were written, actually written by aristocrats. They were written by members of the church because they were the, they were the literate segment of society. So in China, we've got a, a historical record which represents an agenda. And that's, that's when I come back to the kind of, you know, what if we've got the whole thing wrong? You know, what if, what if, what if, or, or how do, how do we kind of correct, correct for that? So it is a particular problem, um, in relation to women, but I would say that we, um, you know, we need to look for those chinks of light in the screen. And the other thing I would, I would say is that if we, if we all assume that, you know, there might be more, there might be more evidence than we think so that, if we all assume that um, there's nothing to, you know, move along, there's nothing to see here, and nobody goes and looks, then, of course, you're not going to find anything. And if we look in some places, um, I mean, I, I suspect that the, I think I think any historian of the Ming would accept that the, the quantity of the written record from the Ming, which has been really investigated to tell us what it says, is only a very small portion. You know the same kind of the same texts have been read again and again and again, and that there is a very very large body of texts, not just BG, but particularly in things like Wenji and you know in people's collected works. And I think this is actually a really important point because among the other kinds of work that at least to me it seems the book is doing that are really important is you're giving us here a kind of methodology for historical looking, right? You're showing us how to look, or at least some of the opportunities and the possibilities for looking 
in places and in ways that otherwise Ming historians may not have thought to look before. And in doing so, you, you have uh, mentioned the term agency at least a couple of times, and it's another really important kind of work that the book does. So we've talked a little bit about um, your, I, I think, quite successful efforts here in this book to let us see the agency of women, um, but also the agency of kings in terms of the calligraphic arts, um, the, the painterly arts um, for an entire chapter. And also uh, you talk about agency quite compellingly in the chapter on tombs, the, the jewels of the King of Liang, chapter five, where you're using a point about the wide degree of variation in underground tombs as evidence or as possible evidence for a history of agency and choice among these kings. So in other words, if there is so much variation, then that could be a point of evidence that's letting us see a kind of agency if we know to look, right? If we know how to look and if we open our eyes up to look in that way. Now, another kind of work that's being done here, and this is, um, there's, we're only getting to, you know, a few of the really fascinating points in all of these chapters, but I want to at least try to get to something in chapter four. You're using in chapter four the case study of painting in kingly households to also make some much larger points that are germane to not just the work that you're doing here in the book, but I think germane to historians of China and also historians more broadly. One of these points looks at the relationship between kings and other um, elite communities. And one of the arguments you're making here that I think is, is quite important, um, especially for Ming history, but again, even beyond, you're showing us in a visual form by looking at these paintings, how the kings were actually socially integrated with other elite forms around um, the art of painting. And so this is a way for us to understand the ways that forms of sociality, kingly sociality and other elite sociality are actually bound up together. So um, can you talk maybe a little bit about that? Because the importance of kings in the larger social um, network of Ming China is also a point that comes up quite early in the book as one of the central arguments um, that the book is making. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I think I think painting is probably the area where the the, the gap between what the written record tells us and what the surviving artifacts are is um, is at its worst. Uh, you know, uh, the, the disparity is at its greatest because, you know, Ming texts on painting, as I say, hidden in plain sight. You know, there's, pl there's plenty of evidence in, in very well-known texts, which any historian of Chinese painting of the Ming knows very well, um, which says, you know, this king was good at painting this and this king was fam renowned for painting that and so on. And then there's almost nothing, like literally almost nothing. There's, there is one painting that um, is, uh, you know, is known about by one of these top rank kings, one dated painting. And that's it, just the one. Now, I should say that our knowledge of what is in Chinese collections is is bad. And Chinese collections do not, you know, there are big volumes you can buy called, you know, the, the collected, you know, things that are in the Palace Museum, Beijing, and so on. But, but this is not what, you know, the, the, these are all selections. And, and so, you know, like just the other day, I get an email from China saying we're doing a journal on this and we're going to 
published three new paintings by Ming members of the aristocracy, which nobody's ever seen before. I'm going like, what? You know? <laughs> so, so there's, there's more, but it's three new paintings. It's not 300 new paintings. So I think my, my point about the disparity between the textual record uh, there holds. Now, I mean, a long-standing interest of mine, um, and this, I guess, goes back to my kind of, you know, we've, we've all got roads not traveled. And, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated. You know, I've always read anthropology. I've always been fascinated by the work that anthropologists do. Um, you know, I've always in some measure regretted I wasn't an anthropologist or whatever. Um, and, and so this whole work on gifts and gift exchange and so much, which was very important, you know, that was the sort of central paradigm of uh, the book I did about Wen Zheng Ming, was thinking about what does the anthropological work on gift giving and gift exchange bring to our understanding of a case where you do have a very large body of material, um, as well as a large written textual record. That, that's in the case of Wen Jingming. So, so gifts and gift exchange um, seem to me to be an important way of thinking about it. These kings did not operate in, in a vacuum. And it's the issue of their um, relationship with other kinds of elite. You know, you know, in, 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 in Sujo, you know, we have this picture of the Ming and, you know, the literati and the elegant gathering and so on. You know, in Sujo, they're hanging out with one another. But in Taiyuan or in, or in Xi'an, you know, the kind of the prominent figure on the social landscape is, you know, is, is the aristocracy. You know, the, every, every official, no matter how high, if you go past the palace of one of these kings, you have to get out of your sedan chair and walk or get off your horse and walk and then get on again. You're not allowed to ride or be carried past the front gate of one of these aristocratic palaces. So every beggar in the street has a perception about like who's who's more important than who. Now you know. So on one level, you know, Xi'an is a is a very good case study. You know, there's lots of really good Chinese historiography history on this, and I'm I'm you know I'm drawing in this book a lot on on a new wave of scholarship of regionally focused scholarship um, within China itself. But um, you know the 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 um, the interaction between these elites, between kind of degree holding elites and the aristocracy, that seems to me to be really productive. And in, in fact, uh, uh, a student here at Oxford, Jérôme Kerluégon, who's, who's published himself very extensively on um, uh, one of the kind of really crucial cultural practices of the of the Ming aristocracy, and that's their role as publishers. And one of the reasons I didn't write more about books and publishing and so on in the book is that kind of Jerome's sort of done that. He's, he's taken care of that. He's published really wonderful work on that. But what he's thinking about now is this kind of, you know, how did power really work at the local level? What, what do we mean by power? Um, and, and by looking at, at, at points where kind of power, where it all went wrong, you know, where, where there's you know, criminal activity or activity which, which you know, or, or conflict. Conflict often generates a textual record, doesn't it? You know, when everything's going smoothly, nobody writes about it. Things go, things go turn nasty. Immediately, there is text, um, and so it, it's when there is struggle or, or, or you know, um, conflict between 
uh, say uh, the aristocracy, the princes, the kings, and and uh, you know the the county magistrates or prefects or grand commanders or you know the grand coordinators, you know the the high reaches of the provincial bureaucracy. And and what you find when you get that is that these guys had you know they had their they had their supporters, they had their posse, you know the the texts would often give us the impression that, you know, everybody hates these people, you know, they're oppressive and so on. But for example, if you become a tenant of one of these guys, you can maybe get off paying your taxes. You don't have to pay the, the land tax anymore. You're, you're on their land and they can protect you from the imperial state. So this chimed very much with stuff that I'm familiar with about kind of lordship in in other sort of disorderly parts of the early modern world. I mean, you know, I'm a Scot. I read a lot of Scottish history. If you think of Scotland in the 16th century, people were very keen to ally themselves to a powerful lord whose, whose role it was, was to protect them from the central government, you know, from a weak central government. Um, and people people liked being a, you know, your lord's power was, was a resource that protected you, A, from the power of other lords, and, and B, from the, the kind of depredations of of the state, of the central government. So so this seems to me, I mean, you know, this is taking me, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond my pay grade here. I'm out of my comfort zone, you know, because I'm not a social or an economic historian. You know, I'm an art historian. Um, and I, I'm much more comfortable, you know, with, with a chapter that's got pictures in it. But I do think that, that there is there is work to be done. And I think Jérôme Kerlouégon's work will tell us something about about what it was like at the local level where these figures exercised, well, you know, you want, you might, you know, I've used, I've, you're right, I've used the word agency a lot, but sometimes it's just about, it's just about power. It's about brute force. You know, they had, they had, they had people on their side and therefore, you know, they could look out for their own people. You know, we're almost in Sopranos territory here. You know, you, you know, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're being protected from other people's depredations by the, by the, by the power, the authority of, of the person to whom you have given your, your allegiance. You know, when you make a Sopranos reference to a northern New Jersey Italian-American, that you're in good territory. So, okay. <laughs> okay. so this is, we, clearly we don't have time to talk about all of the fascinating things in all of the chapters. And um, so I'll just mention for listeners that there is the account of publishing that you alluded to for listeners who are particularly interested in those sets of issues, they can find a discussion of the importance of Ming Kings to publishing um, and appanages as centers of um, sort of reproduction and transmission in terms of publishing in chapter six, which is also a chapter that gives a really wonderful account of uh, bronzes and poetry and music and the kind of mutual co-production um, among the kingly elite and other forms of elite of these cultural forms. But the last kind of substantive question that I want to ask you before we come to our wrap up and conclusion actually stems from something you've just been talking about, and that's the importance of notions and forms of locality in the local. Because one of the, um, at least what it seems to me to be a really important point, um, one of the very important points that you're making 
in the final chapter, chapter seven, Remembered Lanterns, is you take us into more kind of modern and contemporary investments <coughs> with um, kingly lineages and kings in contemporary memory. So you bring us into, um, uh, for example, the Ninghua Palace brand of vinegar, which leads us to um, a history of kingly lineages. And also you bring us um, into Hubei province um, in, into a sort of context where you're eating chicken meatloaf and or one can eat chicken meatloaf and look at tableau of kingly life. And this ultimately resolves into, at least for me, a discussion of the importance of the king as a local figure. And not just perhaps in the, um, you know, the, the kind of simple way we might think about that, a king is associated with a guo, like with a state, with a locality. But really, it seems to me the kind of work that's being done here is about using this appreciation of the power, the agency, the spaces of Ming kings to really reconfigure how we think about locality and the importance of locality as it operates um, in the context of the Ming and perhaps as it helps the Ming operate in the context of historiography more generally. So could you speak a little bit to that, kind of specifically this issue of locality in the local as you um, imagine it to be imbricated with the arguments you're making about Ming kingship? Mm. I, I think I definitely would not have worked, that chapter certainly wouldn't exist. And and these themes wouldn't have been as prominent in the book if I had not made the research trip uh, to China in 2009. Um, and, as, you know, I should make it clear that, you know, strategically, I had decided to go to two places in China. You know, it wasn't going to be possible to I didn't have the time, I didn't have the resources to kind of go everywhere in China. So I thought, okay, I'll go to two places. And and that's why I chose to go to Shanxi and Taiwan principally um, and, and think about the kings of Jin and sites around there. And then I'll go to Hubei, partly because of the archaeology in Hubei, you know, the, 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 king, of, the, the king of Liang to, uh, in Hubei. And, and it was really only kind of in modern China that I, that this theme of locality um, came into being. You know, things like so. You know, Jin is, as we know, the kind of archaic name for Shanxi Province, but it's also what's on the number plates, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, so if you think about if you think about car number plates today. Um, uh, you know, they, they have on them these Bronze Age state names, uh, you know, the same is true in, in you know, in, in, well, in every province. You know, the, the name of the province, these archaic uh, Bronze Age names of the provinces are still very much alive and well on things like number plates. And it, and it was having the experience of people saying to me, you know, have this, have this chicken meatloaf. This was the judging emperor's favorite local dish when he was a prince before he moved to Beijing. And and I think, well, you know, how can you possibly, you know, are they just like pulling, you know, is this just pulling Lao Wai's leg, you know, we're, we're just kind of, but, 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 but that sort of sense of the regional, and it was also something that was very powerfully coming to me out of the the modern scholarship. So, for example, there is a great wave of, you know, now that we have digital access to all of these, um, you know, Chinese scholarly periodicals, if you want to read stuff about the kings of Qin, you know, in Xi'an, then, you know, you need to look in the, you know, in the Shanxi Shifan Dashi Xue Bao. You know, you know, that that journal, that local journal will will have scholarship on 
you know, the local region. So in a sense, it was the contemporary situation. Um, and in particular, the, the, the sense of them as being, you know, when, when you see these wax works of the Jiajing emperors, you know, as we, we all know, you know, the Jiajing emperor is thought of as not one of China's kind of most wonderful uh, human beings. Um, but, you know, if you go to his home, you know, he's a hometown boy made good. And, and there is this kind of celebration of him in that in that uh, city in Hubei province. Um so this is what really made this 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 kind of exposure to to the contemporary local, the contemporary regional, and if you know, I mean, I mean it's kind of banal, but if you fly from Shanxi to Hubei, you're eating very differently immediately. You know, your food is very different, and and I don't want you know, stop me if you think, just just shout me down if you think I'm doing one of these silly kind of you know, well this is the key to Chinese civilization. You know, it isn't that. That's not. That, that's not what I'm saying. But I do think that this idea of kind of, you know, what are the acceptable ways of um, expressing regional identities in a, in a unitary state? You know, you know, China is very, very large. Um, and uh, there are certain ways of expressing local particularity, which central governments don't wish to tolerate, whether that was in the Ming or, or today. Um, but then there are other ways of expressing local particularity that are acceptable, you know, that are acceptable. And and thinking about the boundaries between kind of unacceptable ways of, of expressing local particularity and acceptable ways of expressing local particularity, that was something that, that just kind of you know, was very, you know, it's it, not just me. This is not, you know, it'd be presented to anybody who travels in China. Um, uh, and and is also a way of, I think, getting past the kind of homogeneity of the textual record. Um, because, you know, a gazetteer from Hubei, a Ming gazetteer from Hubei and a Ming gazetteer from Shanxi, don't speak local particularity, except obviously in their content, but in their in their kind of in their rhetorics and their their kind of their, their presentation, they look at you know they're identical. A gazetteer is a gazetteer is a gazetteer, really. Um, and and that's true also. You know, if you look at if you look at maps, Ming map. I'm talking about Ming maps. I'm not talking about modern maps. If you look at a Ming map of, um, uh, you know, say a province like Shanxi, then every Xian is the same looks the same size. Whereas, in fact, you know, we're, well, we're very well aware that then, as now, some Siena are very prosperous and some are very poor, some are very mountainous and some are very kind of fertile. Um, but, but that kind of homogeneity of the textual record, I think, you know, the, the challenge for us as, as historians, and this, you know, here I'm, I'm drawn on stuff that kind of Dennis Twitchett said to me when I was an undergraduate like 40 years ago, um, uh, you, you know, how, how do we get past the homogeneity of that textual record um, and get at some sense of the, of, the, of the particularity? And I just think that for the Ming period, if thinking about the aristocracy is one of the kind of tools of, for doing that, then, then that work is playing a valuable role. I mean, it, it's one way of doing it. It's by no means the only way of doing it, but it, but it is one way of doing something which I, which I think is important and valuable. 
And that's perhaps a great place for us to come to a conclusion. Um, so Craig, thank you so much for your thoughtfulness, for your time. Now there's a bunch of material that we didn't get a chance to even begin to speak about. The book is extraordinarily rich and we've really just um, started to enter into a landscape of the book that's quite rich and quite varied and it contains discussions well beyond um, what we had a chance to talk about in an hour. Given that, is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, you know, I would want to stress that, you know, the visual is very important to me. Um, You know, I'm always saying to my students, you know, make the argument visually. Um, And I hope that the the pictures in the book are not just there as illustrations of the argument. In some senses, you know, there are places where, where for me, the illustrations are the argument. Um, And I'm childishly pleased about the fact that this is, you know, the very first book that I've ever um, published that has photographs in it that I took myself. I'm not a great photographer. They're not great photographs, but they're good enough. You know, they're they're good enough. Um, And I'm, I'm kind of just, you know, childishly pleased with myself that I managed I managed to not blow that part of it, you know, that I came back from China with some images that I could actually use because I'm just in awe of colleagues that I know who can take wonderful photographs just at the drop of a hat. So um, I'm sorry to boast about that, but that's what I'd like to boast about. No, that's great. And I'm glad that you mentioned it because that's something that's a really important part of the experience of the book as well. Um, So I'm glad that we got that out there. Now, Craig, now that the book is out, and congratulations on what I hope is completely obvious, um, a book that I hope is obvious that I think is absolutely fabulous um, and I think is also very important um, for a wide community of kinds of readers. So now that the book is out, what are you working on now? Are there any projects um, that you're currently working on that you're feeling particularly inspired by? Well, well, there's one project which, of course, in a sense, grows directly out of this, and that's a big exhibition um, that will open at the British Museum uh, on the 18th of September this year, which is called uh, Ming, 50 Years That Changed China, um, which is uh, an exhibition about the first 50 years uh, of the 15th century, the half century from 1400 to 1450. So things like the Liang Zhuangwang tomb falls smack bang in the middle um, of this period. And this is really, uh, you know, this did grow out of this project. I, I, I kind of came back from China in 2009, having seen the material from this tomb, and I kind of got in touch with friends and colleagues at the British Museum. I said, this stuff is just fabulous. And we've got to find some way of, of, of getting this um, in front of a British public. And I'd had very encouraging noises from, from colleagues in China about the potential feasibility of this. So after kind of many years of work, this exhibition is now kind of moving in its final stages. And that that's what I'm, you know, that's what's on the top of my to-do pile is, you know, the catalogue of that. And that is, I think, important because, you know, the exhibition, however successful it is, will or unsuccessful, will still reach an audience which is very much bigger than the audience for a book like Screen of Kings, um, you know, and it will reach people who are not specialists. And, and so, you know, there's a tremendous um, 
responsibility to try and get that right. Of course, it's it's completely different from writing a book in that you don't have the kind of, you know, you write a book, you can say what you like. You write and you, you work on an exhibition, you're immediately, you're working with designers, with interpretive people, with, with the British Museum's very wonderful kind of publicity machine, you know, so, so that you're, 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 you're you know, you know it, it's a kind of public scholarship, which is, which is quite different from the, the writing of a book. But I, I'm still finding that kind of fairly exciting. And then there's a project to work on. Uh, I'm, I'm finishing up a book called Chinese Painting and Its Audiences, which is based on a series of Mellon lectures that I gave at the National Gallery of Art in DC in 2012. And that, that, that's a much more kind of art historical art i mean i'm arguing with a different set of people there i'm i'm arguing with with art historians about kind of the role of the image in the early modern and modern worlds from kind of 1500 to now um, and that book is just kind of coming to its end. And then, then I'd like to kind of take stock and think which is next. And, you know, every time I say I'm going to not work on the Ming next, I'm going to kind of retool and retool and do something about the early 20th century, which is also a kind of great passion of mine. Um, then I get I find something else being interesting. So I'm, I'm making no promises. But uh, but those are the two projects that are kind of they're, they're on. the. I'm sitting at my desk looking at piles of material that, that I that I need to kind of do what process now in, in relation to those two projects. Well, best of luck with that, Craig. Thank you so much again for making the time. Um, it's really been a pleasure. And congratulations again on a fabulous book. Thank you so much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.